Mark 8, 31 through 33. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Um, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark um, since uh, the winter. If you open your Bible, you'll see that there are two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament points forwards to Christ, who is the very center of the Bible. And the New Testament points us to what he did when he came into the world, what he achieved, what he said, what he was about. If you begin with the New Testament, you see there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the eyewitness accounts of the disciples, what they saw Jesus do as they followed him. And the shortest and most concise of those is Mark, which we have been working our way through. Uh, we got to the middle point, chapter 8. There are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. And we jumped ahead to the end as we looked at Easter. We went uh, to the end of the Gospel of Mark for Palm Sunday and for Easter Sunday. And so now we go back to the middle, to chapter 8, to where we left off. And those of you who have been coming for a while remember that in the middle of Mark's Gospel, right in the middle, chapter 8, there is a pivotal moment when, after all that Jesus has been doing, healing, miracles, teaching, being confronted by the leaders of Israel, he finally asked Peter, the lead disciple, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah, that is the anointed one of God. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, with this confession, the whole gospel pivots, and J Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem and the cross, and that's what the rest of the gospel is about. And Jesus, for the first time, begins to teach them in a very direct and explicit way exactly who he is and what he's about. He's preparing the disciples for Jerusalem and the cross. He's preparing them to take over his ministry after he has gone. So he's, he's just been confessed as the Messiah by Peter. And then we get this, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. These three verses, this center of the Gospel of Mark, is so filled with meaning, so pithy. What I'm going to say is basically just kind of skimming over the surfaces, but this rewards study if you are interested in the Bible at all. I'd encourage you to pray through these verses. Each one is so filled with stuff. The Son of Man must suffer. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? What is he getting at? What does he mean? He's just been confessed as the Messiah. 
Now he calls himself the Son of Man. Jesus is unpacking who he is. He is explaining who he is. So what does he mean? Well, if you look in the Bible, you see that Jesus is referred to in basically uh, a few different ways. He has been, just been confessed as the Christ, as the Messiah. That literally means the anointed one, the one who was anointed by God and sent to take care of his people, the people of Israel. In fact, that's why he was killed. Jesus, on his cross, it said, King of the Jews. It was what upset the local leaders. It's what upset the Romans. But we also learn through the Gospels that Jesus was more than that. In the very first chapter of Mark, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and we read this. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's the first place in the Gospels that you get a glimpse that Jesus is more than just some regular human being. You have the Father in heaven blessing his Son, who's just been baptized, and receiving the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first glimpse that Jesus' identity is richer than any other figure that we've seen so far in the Bible. He is the Son of God, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he has a relationship with Father and Holy Spirit. Now here, he calls himself the Son of Man. So he has been identified by God as the Son of God. He has been acknowledged as a Messiah, and now he calls himself the Son of Man. What is he doing? He is connecting himself to the story of the Bible. If you go back into the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel, you read this. Daniel has a vision of heaven and of God. And he says, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this is the image of God, of the Messiah, that Israel knew. When they say Messiah, in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, they are thinking about this revelation. The one sent by God with dominion, with power, with authority, who is going to come and take care of God's people. And so Jesus here is identifying himself with this person, this figure from the Old Testament. He's reaffirming that the Old Testament is all about him, and he is the one that's been sent. But what is it? Is Jesus the Son of God, or is he the Son of Man? 
How should we think about him? By the way, this was a, a big discussion in the early church. If you go to a seminary, one of the first uh, classes you take is called the uh, Christological Controversies. It's about the early church's attempt to understand who Jesus actually was. Because the outside world kept asking them, was he a prophet? Was he a teacher? Was he an angel? Who, who was he? What did he do? And there are basically two challenges to Jesus. One, that, okay, maybe he was divine, like an angel or a spirit, but he wasn't really a human being. He wasn't really one of us. Maybe his feet didn't touch the ground, actually. Maybe he never got dirty. The trouble with that was, if you read the Gospels, Jesus was born, just like any other human being. He grew up. He ate and drank. He suffered. He was scourged when he went to the cross. He died on the cross. His body was put in a grave. He was definitely physical. He wasn't just some apparition. He wasn't just some spirit that appeared like a human being. Well, then maybe he's just a human being. Maybe he is just like an inspired prophet, especially spirit-filled person, especially knowledgeable, you know, kind of like the Buddha. The trouble with that is that Jesus performed extraordinary miracles. Nature obeyed him. The sun, the stars, when he spoke, the storm was calmed. When he got out of the boat, he walked on water. He defeated death. He brought people back to life. When he was killed, he came alive again. He's clearly not just some human being. He's something special. Uh, in a few Sundays, we're going to look at Jesus transfigured when he appears to his disciples on the mountain, glowing, a completely different kind of human being. So the early church debated this, and they got together uh, the Council of Nicaea. Some of you have heard of that. This was uh, a couple of centuries after Jesus' death and resurrection. And all the Christians got together with, with the scriptures, and they looked through scriptures, and they figured together, prayerfully, what does the Bible teach us about Jesus? And they came up with this. This is sort of the, the next creed after the Apostles' Creed. I believe, this is every Christian, and this is the consensus of all the Christians after they've studied the Bible, I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, who for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So that's the Christian summary of who Jesus is. Notice a couple of things. Jesus Christ was not made. Jesus Christ is not created like we are. He is the only begotten Son of God, sharing the same substance with the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. This is not a spirit-filled human being. But he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. Incarnate means made flesh and became a human being. 
And so God is 100% divine, and he's 100% human. Son of God, son of man, 100% of each together. In him, we see the full revelation of God, but as a human being, he experiences and suffers everything that we suffer. And that's why he suffers, because he became one of us. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must die. When God created humanity, he made humanity responsible for this world. And this world has become broken and ugly. And so to pay the price for the brokenness of this world, somebody had to take responsibility for it. Human beings had failed. And that person was Jesus. He became a human being like us. He becomes the new Adam. He shows us what responsibility is all about. And he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He spoke plainly. No more parables. No more not revealing everything that he is. Right here, Jesus reveals the unvarnished essential truth about who he is. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And Peter doesn't like it. When Peter hears the truth, remember, Peter has just confessed Jesus as the Messiah. When Peter hears that Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, has to die, it upsets him. Why is that? The reason is that Peter, like every other human being, thinks that the way you solve problems is to punish bad people. Identify the problem people and go out and punish them. That's how you fix the world. And the trouble with that is that from God's perspective, everybody participates in the brokenness of our world. If God was about punishment, everyone would be punished. Everyone is responsible because we're all human beings and we have a shared responsibility for the world. And Jesus contradicts, reverses all of that. And that's why he has to suffer. And that's why eventually he has to die. Now, a lot of people don't like that idea. Peter certainly doesn't. And you will hear, hear many people, I heard this when I was a seminary, and you'll hear it again and again, why can't we all just get along? Why does there have to be suffering? Why does there have to be pain and punishment? Why does there have to be justice? Can't we just forgive each other? Can't we just get along with each other? Forgive and forget, and everything will be sweet. There's a problem with that. Uh, Miroslav Wolf was, uh, is uh, a Christian theologian. He was in the Balkans during the, the Balkans War. And if you recall, in the Balkans War, there was an, ethnic, an attempt 
to ethnically cleanse um, one of the countries there and the villages and towns there. And the different ethnic groups attacked each other in the most vicious way. Uh, rape was used as a deliberate weapon of war. Children were killed, families driven out, men shot. It was a ghastly war uh, until the West finally intervened. And Miroslav Wolf, he actually moved to America, a professor here, and he wrote a book about it. And he points out that the idea of forgiveness is easy if you live in safety and comfort, like most of us do. But how do you reconcile yourself to somebody who you've seen rape, kill, mutilate, drive out, burn down your family, your family farm, hurt your children, when they live next door to you? Do you just forgive and forget? Do you just move on? Do you just get over it? Just saying forgive is not enough. In fact, I, I've come to believe that forgiveness is, is actually divine. If you look at the world, I don't think human beings know how to forgive each other. And asking them and telling them that's what they should do, it does not help. You try telling a grieving mother that she should forgive the person who killed her child. It doesn't work. You know, I experienced this um, when I was younger. In the 70s, I worked in Germany for a while with a bunch of Irishmen. And they were from Northern Ireland. There was a big construction boom in the 70s in Germany. And they were Catholic and Protestant. And they lived together in Germany. They shared cars. They shared money. They lived in the same apartment. They, you would swear they, they were brothers. But of course, that was the time, the 70s, when they had the troubles in Northern Ireland, when people were Catholics and Protestants were blowing each other up. And I was a, I was a kid, I was about 18, and I, I remember saying, we were uh, at a cafe, and naively I said, if everyone could just forget the past, these ancient hatreds, then everything would be okay. Why doesn't Northern Ireland just forgive each other? Forget about the past. Live for the future. Everything will be sweetness and light, kumbaya. And at that point, one of the men there, remember, these, are, these guys are living together. They are, they are sharing everything because they're in Germany. They're not in Northern Ireland. He said that his brother, his older brother, had been shot by a soldier when he was still a young boy at school. And he talked about how the death of that older brother absolutely devastated the family and his mother and his father. It completely devastated that family. And as I listened to him, I realized, you know, I'd grown up safe in the south of England, never faced real hatred, never faced real violence. Forgiveness was just an abstraction. But for a person who's really suffered evil, saying just forgive somebody doesn't work. So what are you going to do? What is the solution? Most, for most people, the solution is revenge. If you look at the world, that's how most people in most times and places have responded to evil, to violence, to people who have hurt them. Go and hunt down and kill the people that have hurt you. 
And that just has produced this endless cycle of violence and war in the world. What else could you do? You can call out for justice. You know, this has been attempted. There have been attempts in different parts of the world to get together and just say we forgive each other. It happened in South Africa. It happened in Rwanda. It's going to have to happen at some point in Syria. Think of all the places in the world that there have been civil wars. And they always attempt some kind of reconciliation. Let's just forgive each other. And so far, it's never worked. Forgiveness is divine. To try to forgive without justice, to try to forgive someone who has hurt you and yours, with no punishment, with no suffering, has never worked. What's the solution? Well, God's solution is Jesus. And Jesus comes into the world, and he takes responsibility for the ills of the world, and he takes them onto himself. Instead of coming as an avenging uh, head of an army, instead of punishing people, instead of perpetuating this cycle of revenge, by the way, it would wipe out everybody, Jesus comes in and says, no, I'm not going to use violence. I'm not going to blame anybody else. I am going to take responsibility onto myself. I'm going to become a human being, join the human family, and take onto myself everything that has gone wrong in the world. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Human beings want revenge. God has another idea. But why does Jesus call Peter Satan? You know, Satan is the personal name of the devil, of evil. And he identifies that with Peter. What has got Jesus so upset? Why the vehemence here? What is the issue? By the way, if you look at the Bible, Jesus doesn't get upset that much. Jesus faces challenges, faces demons, is tempted by the devil. No problem. The only places that he gets upset are on his journey to the cross. He gets upset right here, the turning point when Peter basically says to him, you don't have to go and die. He gets upset when he gets to Bethany at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he sees his friend Lazarus dead. He weeps when he sees Jerusalem, where he's going to meet and find the cross. He gets upset with the money changers who have turned the temple in the center of Jerusalem into a marketplace. And preeminently, he gets upset in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he is betrayed and he goes to the cross. Jesus has no fear when he's confronted by the powers and evils of the world. He's calm when the soldiers come to arrest him. He tells his disciples not to fight. He doesn't say anything when he's scourged and humiliated when he has to carry the cross on his ruined and broken back to Golgotha. 
Even on the cross, he says, forgive them, they don't know what they do. He remains calm, he remains strong, he remains focused. Except in one place. This is Gethsemane. He takes Peter, James, and John to the garden. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Going a little further, he falls to the ground and prays. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's the only time he loses it. In fact, the other Gospels say when he weeps, he weeps drops of blood. This is an extremity of human experience right here. What is the issue? Why is Jesus afraid? Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What is the cup? The cup, and it appears throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, is the cup filled with the wine of the fury of God's wrath against sin. It is the cup of judgment. That's what Jesus fears. What is sin? It's a very short, archaic word. It means to miss the mark. It means not to be about the things of God, to miss what God intended. And God created the world good and very good, and he created for human beings to flourish together in that world. An abundant creation filled with beautiful, gentle creatures to enjoy the garden and God forever. That's the way it's meant to be. And sin is all the ways that it's not like that. It is the brokenness of God's good creation. It's the mistreated, the hurt, the oppression, the violence, the pain, the misery. Every hungry child, every crying mother, every despairing prisoner, every wounded soldier, every life shortened or stunted or marred by a disease and injury, every victim of crime or abuse or violence, every single death. Nothing has been missed. Nothing is forgotten. And God's perfect justice and holiness is filled with a furious wrath against everything. That is the cup of justice. That was the cup that Jesus wanted to avoid. Think of who Jesus is. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's a profound mystery what that means in practice. But we know that that set of relationships has been from all eternity, and a set of relationships of perfect love for each other where each person gives themselves away to the other completely, but with such exquisite attention, with such a protection of each other's dignity, that though they give themselves away to each other, they remain three, three in one, from all eternity. And that's what Jesus has experienced. The very center of his being is that, a love from all eternity. What would it be like 
to have that love replaced with wrath. To have someone who loved you suddenly slash at you, scourge you, to have iron spikes driven into you. What would that be like? On the radio a few years ago, I listened to part of a discussion, and there was a doctor, psychiatrist, talking about a patient that he's had, he had whose mother was mentally ill. And I don't remember all the details of that story, but uh, one particular element of what he said struck to me. So his mother was mentally ill, and she would suddenly change from this loving mother into someone else, someone who would just hurt him, burn him, cut him, stamp on his hands with her heels or his feet, do terrible things to him. And the interviewer was talking to him and asked him, how did he deal with that when it happened? You know, he's just a little boy. And he said he would look for the nearest wall and charge into it headfirst to knock himself out. It was literally unbearable. He would go mad if he didn't do something about it. I think that that's a glimpse of what it meant for Jesus to go to the cross. He wasn't worried about death. He wasn't worried about pain. He was worried and was fearful of the wrath of God, his Father. And in fact, we'll see as we go through the gospel. On the cross is the only time that Jesus calls God, God. Every other time, it's God, my Father. But on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he was completely alone. Why did he do that? He did that for you. See this cup? It's a cup of wrath. But because Jesus drank from it, it's now a celebration. It is a gift. It is now our relationship, new life. We're going to go to that in a moment. Let's pray. Lord, we can scarcely comprehend what you did for us, what the cost was to you, and yet you did. Lord, accept our gratitude, our worship, and our praise. Fill us with your spirit and show us what it means to follow you, to be your disciples. Lord, it is with our boundless praise that we thank you. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen. As we continue to worship now, we're going to receive an offering. The offering is a chance for members of this church to support the ministries of this church. If you're a guest or a visitor, don't feel obliged to give. Think about what you've heard. Enjoy the music. <laughs> 